It seems there's a bit of a migration happening at the moment. City real estate agents are reporting that inquiries from overseas are increasing. Regional agents are reporting that inquiries from our major cities are on the up. The demographic of tree and sea changes is changing and actually has been for the last few years. No longer the province solely of retirees, millennials in particular are leaving our cities. They've been driven out by unaffordability, the promise of a slower pace, more downtime, enjoying nature and a newly proven ability to work remotely. But is this a COVID-19 urban myth? How do we know for sure that it's really happening? Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as down Download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au Online search behaviour is very telling and today we're going to get some intel from Alice Stoltz, Domain's managing editor and host of Domain's new podcast, Property Unpacked. With over 20 years working in the media industry, Alice is passionate about helping Australians make sense of the property market and is a regular domain judge on the block. Alice is joining us today to discuss search behaviour in the time of COVID and what has been revealed about where buyers are searching today, why tree change and semi-tree change, that's a new one, on the city's edge are trends and what makes a location score well on livability. Thank you so much for joining us, Alice. It's a pleasure to be here. Hi, Alice. Nice to meet you. Um, I guess the first thing I'd love to chat about is well, kind of what uh, Veronica alluded to in the intro, just search data. I think it's almost the holy grail of um, data that you'd want to see with property. What's some of the big things you've seen change over this kind of COVID period? And from what I've seen, search data seems to be on the up dramatically. It is, it is, Chris. And look, we've really, it's a great way to have your finger on the pulse of what Australians are thinking and dreaming about for their future. And at Domain, we've seen an enormous shift away from searches with traditional hotspots of metro cities to people looking further afield and going regional. So the idea of a tree change or a sea change has never been more palatable, I think, to many Australians. And we're particularly seeing it in Melbourne and Sydney, where there's a lot of white collar professionals, obviously, who are or have been forced to work from home. They're now thinking, I could actually do my job from anywhere. I don't have to be bound to being near the train station that has, you know, for years taken me into the city to do my job every day. And with your search data, do you have like an IP address on the person searching that, like search? Um, so do you know where they're from? Like, and then that can kind of link that and say, well, you know, in the inner ring of Sydney, these people are searching for this. Um or is it more just broad sort of aggregate data that you generally see? It, I'd have to ask our tech wizards, but it's what I yeah. understand. It's more sort of broad aggregate data. But when yeah. we do have memberships on people, we can sort of understand where they're living and what and what they are searching for and how that search is evolving. So, you know, we know that demand has traditionally been up, for example, in, in the inner east of Melbourne for many years. And now that is expanding out further afield to areas that hadn't normally been popping up before and particularly before COVID hit. So we can sort of follow those migration patterns around. Yeah. And conversely, in areas like WA in that there is more search activity in the cities of, of Perth and that than what there has been regionally. So it's really interesting depending on what state you look at around the country at the moment. Obviously, location is only part of the property journey. Um, the actual preference in terms of the property and bedrooms, et cetera, has that shifted as well? Have you noticed a big change from, you know, people looking for four beds, let's say, then three beds or has that data not really been found out yet? No, we do have that data. And this is what I find just absolutely riveting. There's been a massive spike in keyword searches for home office, yeah, okay. particularly in New South Wales, Victoria and Canberra. Um, <laughs> and that's April and May compared with Feb and March. So you can see that as we've sort of gone through this journey, it's getting more and more, oh my gosh, I really need that standalone home office now. And, and Victoria home office keyword searches rose 830% in April and May compared to February and March. Um, and you said 30%. 30%. 
it. And I wonder also, is that because Victoria has had um, tougher lockdown laws? It's a lot, it was a lot higher than what Sydney was and higher than Canberra mm. also. Um, and we also saw that, um, surprisingly, we saw a fall in home office keyword searches in Queensland and South Australia and Tasmania. And in those states, there was actually a rise in retreat that people wanted to sort of say, where can I escape to? You know, that they didn't, they were daydreaming mm-hmm. about getting away from their home. They may have enough space now. But um, it, it, I just find it absolutely intriguing that I do think that idea that, you know, for many years we've shunned having a home office and people wanting to have bigger open plan living spaces. And now we're definitely seeing more demand for people wanting to cut about that area of a house that does sort of inoculate them from the rest of their residents. What's so interesting is how immediate this has been. And I know obviously being locked in your home and having to work from home and the kids schooled from home and all that sort of pressure, really, there's nothing like it to, to mm. really put the spot, spotlight on your home being too small if, it's too, if it is too small. But how quickly people have said, right, I'm going to start looking elsewhere. So the level of dissatisfaction in their lives must actually be quite high. Mm. Mm. And I think it also, it shows sort of the agility of many Australians to think, you know what, I've done with that now. I am going to make a move or have an option to having a move. And we're also such a lucky country that we can do that. You know, like just this morning, I've just drove 70 k's back from the Mornington Peninsula to Red Hill, where I might just drop my children off for a couple of days. And I was back in an hour back to my house in inner Melbourne. And that's pretty extraordinary to think that that's, that's possible, don't you think? And, and there was there was peak hour traffic and that. But I think that many people are actually thinking I can now split my time between living, you know, 60 k's away. And we're definitely seeing a rise in people's um, interest in sort of that um, having a bit of acreage outside the city, like whether it be a hobby farm or something, but a commutable acreage. Whereas I think once upon a time, those drives used to be four hours away or something, thanks to great infrastructure, particularly Melbourne and Sydney, we do have those little hotspots just around the inner city that are not too far away. It's actually interesting because um, the show that that I was co-host of uh, on Foxtel, uh, Relocation, Relocation, that was the first um, series and then we did three of Location, Location, Location Australia. But Relocation, Relocation, the premise of that was that couples would come along and they wanted to do a sort of a commute, sea change, tree change, but also have an urban home because they were going to split their living and they were work and commute and, and partly work from home, et cetera, et cetera. And it was based on the UK show where cities are closer together Mm. Uh, and I think the roads are probably a bit better too. Um, but the actual distance, the tyranny of distance doesn't exist in the UK. And at the outset of that show, I was like going, we, I would eat my hat if anybody actually does end up buying two properties. Now, nobody really fit the exact profile, but we did have two couples that bought two properties, by the way. But but it, it was, seemed so ridiculously pie in the sky then. But all of a sudden now, it's like that actually is something that's that's high on the agenda. Isn't that incredible sort of how how ahead of your time that show obviously was now and now we're just seeing such an increasing um, desire for people to do that and I think because our expectations for having a better quality of life just keep continuing to rise and we do have that sense of Mm. we we do want to have it all. Do you know what I mean? We do want our children to have, I don't know, a paddock to play on or something and we do want to be able to have a great career and a great job and be connected to our colleagues but we're sort of saying but you know what, only a couple of days a week will actually be fine for that right? rather than having to be chained to that office desk all the time. And I think that that COVID, one of the good things to come out of COVID is that we have just learned that you really can work from anywhere at, at the moment. And, and I think offices have been forced employers to really accept that reality, knowing there's been really very little dip in productivity thus far um, for many businesses. So is there a radius where the search these, these sort of t- tree and sea change searches, is there a radius where they stop? A radius around Look, the CBD, I, think, I mean? Yeah, I think. Look, when we talk about this sort of commutable acreage, that really is 30K plus suburbs from Melbourne and Sydney, which, look, for some people would actually argue that's not that's just really the outer suburbs of, of, yeah. of, those, <laughs> of, of those big cities, you know what I mean? Mm. But there's definitely, I think, people like that sweet spot to sort of be under two hours back to the city. But I really wonder, will that will we now push that boundary further, knowing the work from 
home is becoming more available basically whereas I think a year ago it was definitely under two hours whereas I think now as I said people can have Mm. more flexibility in the days that they can do that and obviously the further away you go usually the better the location is um, and often the more affordable it is because it's all well and good to say I want to be an hour and a half from from a metro city but you usually will come with a hefty price tag to pay for that sort of luxury of not being too far away. Well, that's the problem, isn't it? That that you know, as the migration happens, those closer, uh, those areas closer in are going to get unaffordable as well. Um, and also, you know, you, you've got to look at infrastructure. I mean, I was reading an article recently where basically millennials, when they're moving out of the cities, you know, they want they want good schools, um, they want yeah. a university, and they want a hospital mm-hmm. uh, and coffee. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, so they're the sort of like the four things. Are they, you know, I guess heading into your livability um, or the work that Domain has done on livability, what is it that makes a great suburb or a great area? Well, we know there's definitely more to our suburbs than just property prices. And I think for our suburbs to continue to function as they house and accommodate more and more people, they need to be very livable. And basically, we did a study, um, a very comprehensive study with Deloitte, where we looked at all the factors that make, make that measure livability. And we looked at things like cafe and restaurants, access to trains, buses or ferries, employment, open spaces, tree cover, primary and secondary schools, and even mobile and internet access is obviously a big part yeah. of that. Like all the juicy stuff that makes it such a magical place to be. But I do also wonder, will that now evolve further if we yeah. do change the way we live? Like, you know, is is public transport going to be as key if people aren't commuting to the city? I mean, personally, I think it will be, but but maybe that will evolve more than what we ever expected it to, you know, when we started thinking about livability originally. Because you're right, Veronica, I think people are so demanding on what they want um, and rightly so from the areas they live in. People want to have access to fantastic schools around the corner. They don't want to have to cross town to go to the best hospital in the city that they live in. And they want to have a beautiful open space nearby because they probably haven't got um, a quarter acre block anymore with a big, beautiful garden. So they want to be able to have a lovely park across the road from their house that they can really live in. And much more of that sort of European lifestyle of living in smaller houses, but having more space to spread out as a community. So I think you've done the livability thing for a couple of years mm. now. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, do you imagine, though, that over time there's going to be a dramatic shift in what's livable today to what's going to be the best livability suburbs in the future? Because, you know, a lot of those factors are kind of set in stone in terms of distance, commute, et cetera. They can change a little bit, but, you know, tree cover, it's, it's not like going to dramatically change overnight. So. Do you say that what's livable today will most likely still be the most livable suburbs in the future? That's such a good question. I I think it is constantly evolving. There are always the traditional players who are in those top 10 lists. Uh, But in in Victoria last year, we had a new entrance, which was Footscray in the inner west of Mm. Melbourne. And that that was a new contender. And and what had kept Footscray out for many years was the crime was high, cafes and restaurants weren't great, um, schools were a bit of a sort of mm, not so amazing. But the community has really sort of voted with its feet on those areas and, and changed what he, what makes that suburb wonderful like it's got many layers of texture and yeah, yeah. and richness now and you know I think I think at some stage you had the best smashed avocado in Melbourne and it's got all the things <laughs> that sort of hero those areas and make them wonderful like and it, it is little things like having a beautiful artis, artisanal florist or something down the road that makes people think gosh there's a lot of care and love in this area um, I yeah. want to keep investing in it and make and make the community great so I, I think there's always going to be sort of placeholder suburbs in there you know um, Mossman in Sydney and Darling Point and Lavender Bay in Sydney and that sort of stuff. But we are seeing usually there's a sprinkling of new entrants each year and I do think that will continue to evolve as as communities become stronger and richer and more demanding on government to make the area better. It's interesting that you talk about, you know, the the stalwarts, you know, the Mossmans and the Darling Points because in reality they are livable but only for a certain type of person and with a certain um, income or a certain uh, wealth factor, right? Um most people aren't going to find those areas livable because they're going to feel like a fish out of water. Mm. Um, so, so what? How do you determine, I guess, livability in a broader sense? Because diversity, for instance, you know, where I live, it's quite a much more diverse area. 
you know, and I would hate to live in Mossman, for instance. Mm. Um, how do you how do you sort of work it out so that you get a score that does accurately reflect that that spread of demand? So what we do is we've got those 16 factors that we measure it on. And I think the ones that are real heroes across the board, like, you know, things like crime to density of cultural services to um, topographic variation, that sort of stuff, and coastal proximity and that sort of stuff. So there are things that you cannot change. And that's why the heroes are usually always the heroes, because unless something changes dramatically, Mm. um, they will always be there. But Veronica, you're right. Like, you know, East Melbourne, for example, has been the number one suburb a few years ago in Melbourne. And it famously doesn't even have a milk bar, you know, (laughs) and and you can say, well, how is it livable when it's got that? But I think it just hits it out of the park when it comes to transport, um, sporting, it's the sporting precinct of Melbourne, Mm. um, you know, beautiful parkland and and the green outweighs the the, the buildings by a massive amount and you can walk to the city and that sort of stuff. So look, I think a lot of it is about people who are interested in livability really need to go and live in that suburb for a weekend and just explore it and really feel like what it walks feels like to walk to the train station, go to the local cafe and get a and get a coffee and go and lie on the grass and read the Sydney Morning Herald and see how it feels to actually be there and be in that area because it's always going to come down to personal preference and what's livable for me might not be for you. And I think and I think our, our appetite for that also evolves over time. You know, if you've got young children, school is obviously key if you are working in the city you want to have an amazing commute to work if you are working in that CBD. So I think that will also evolve of what people what people want from livability. I think why I love it the most and why I think it's a really interesting study is that it actually t- uses lots of different factors. Like you could say like it's a great place to invest in X suburb because it's got good schools and great connectivity to the city, but it may be lacking in crime or commute, etc. You know, a lot of people look at the positives of suburbs, but they don't really think about what's this suburb lacking. And Mm. I think, you know, when you look at all these different factors, you could say, well, what's holding back this suburb is X. If that changed, would this suburb become much more livable over time? That's generally going to be good for prices. So I think you can really, you know, kind of dig a bit deeper by just looking at, you know, lots of different factors in what drives a suburb. And I think also what the expectations are, what people want. Like I know we added walkability as a factor. Yep. And mm, I think yeah. walkability is now huge, isn't it? You know, it yeah. was, yeah. I can't remember when, when do we start thinking about 10,000 steps a day, but it wasn't that long ago, <laughs> was it? And I think when things like that come in, our demand for that is really, really rises. And will we suddenly demand walkability, but also walkability that's actually somewhere lovely and not walking next to a main road where, there's, you know, there's, <laughs> yes. there's there's buses, Parramatta Road in Sydney, for example, whizzing past. It's not exactly a, a lovely walking environment, for example. Or too, so, too many hills. <laughs> well, that, that's exactly right. So I, I think that I think it will keep changing. And that's what I kind of love about livability. I think um, it is reflective of the time that we're living in. I think walkability is a huge one, actually, because, you know, I'm up in the Northern Beaches and, and walkability is like one, zero out of ten. And like there's no footpaths. <laughs> the hills are like, you know, Everest. Um, and <laughs> And it really is like a massive deterrent on the, the area. Like it's, it's, you have to get in a car and, you know, if you're new to the area, you don't really think about that um, and the safety with prams and things like that. So it's just like one of those things that buyers wouldn't think about before they buy, but by looking at studies like this, they're aware of them. Well, and it has such an impact on your lifestyle. So if you yeah. are in that situation, you can't just tootle down to the shops, you know, <laughs> with your kids for a walk to get an ice cream. And I'd argue that, you know, I, I love doing things like that. So for me, I've learned that that is important. And I think for different, you know, horses for courses. But yeah, yeah, for me, it's a really big part of where I live is having a lovely area when I walk out my front door to feel like to feel connected to my community and to feel it's a really pleasant environment to be in. And I, and I would compromise on the size of the house I have to have higher walkability, for example, and a beautiful park nearby. And that's something, you know, it is an absolute, it's like the human condition of property buying, this this dilemma between space and location. And it comes up in nearly every search that we work with with clients. It, it's, uh, it's, it's a very interesting idea. And people often don't realise what they are prepared to compromise on until they're presented with it. So, you know, they could have the ideal home, but it is remote in, in terms of in a, in a suburb where they do need to drive everywhere. Mm. And then you put them in that, you drop them into that location where they can walk and they'd be part of the, a bit more vibrant. 
and you'll find out very quickly whether you can cope with a smaller home or not. But um, so I wonder that back to the sort of the, the COVID uh, search activity, because if people are searching for home offices and bigger homes, do you think that, you know, there might be a bit of a migration to that and then they realise that they miss that connectivity and the walkability? Well, I, I really do think a lot about that moment. And I think a lot of people are, particularly with children, at home people are saying I need a bigger house I'm hearing this all the time I need more space I'm literally going mental I will make the compromise I'll move further out to the outer suburbs if I I need to to, you know be able to sell my house in the inner city buy out further but then they're stuck out there and that Mm. feeling of isolation and I think we heard so much about the detrimental effects of isolation during during lockdown and and I feel really concerned that people think that is a solution to have more space but I mean, my opinion is bigger is not always better. And I think you really need to weigh up, is that okay for you that you suddenly your kids can't walk to school, for example, because you've moved so far away, you have to drive them or they have to get a bus each day. Is that worth it for having an extra bedroom or, or your children having their own bathroom or something? I, you know, it, it's an interesting conundrum that I think a lot of people are facing at the moment. And I suppose... I would really caution people to think very long and hard about these decisions before they have a knee jerk reaction of, I've got to get out of this house. I would that's, too that's good advice. encourage them to uh, utilise Airbnb and do those sort of week stays in an area, for instance. There's a good way to test it. Um, and also just don't be afraid to rent for a while. But has there been, so we, we, you've seen a, 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 you know, a spike in, in different keyword searches. You've seen uh, interest and in certainly search activity in, um, you know, those tree and semi-tree change areas. Have you seen uh, a spike in transactions? So people, they would like to be, but we do not have enough stock at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, you only need to go around, you know, Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane at the moment to see there's, there is not enough stock. Um, I don't know what you guys have noticed, but all around me, I'm seeing people queuing up, but open for inspections. Good properties are selling very quickly. And when I say good property, I mean one that's got the most, a great floor plan, a good, good location, and it's priced accordingly there's a um, premium for four bedrooms at the moment i can tell you there that definitely is. <laughs> there definitely is um so but but there's there's just not enough stock to meet the demands at the moment and i i think that will slowly change i wonder this year will we have a bit of a shift in you know people not holding on uh, holding off waiting to sell into into spring you know people years ago used to be obsessed with i've got to wait till the wisteria is in full bloom and the blossoms mm-hmm. on the tree and the garden looks gorgeous i think that idea of waiting to spring won't happen as much this year and and people who have been waiting to sell will probably list sooner than later rather than wait. And because waiting for what? Does it really make a difference if the roses are out? I mean, mm. I, I've always been a bit cynical of that. And I think you've just got more competition really in spring. Well, that's but that's exactly I, right. <laughs> and I, I think it's also good to see a house sort of, you know, warts and all. Like during the winter, if a house looks beautiful in winter, it will look absolutely incredible in summer. And and people who are selling in winter can do very clever things to make their house even more luscious and gorgeous and inviting to be in. So there are there are ways around that. But um, I just think until we get more stock on the market, we're not really seeing what's really happening and what people are really wanting to do because people just can't can't buy. But the stock levels, uh, low stock levels, does that apply outside of the major cities as well? Yep, it's happening all around the country. So we're seeing things slowly improve as people are dipping their toes back in the water. This week it's interesting watching in Victoria, though, which was slowly rising with COVID now on the increase again and sort of the threat of potential lockdowns again. You can see it sort of quivering a little bit. So what's going to happen in that market? It's really affecting people's confidence about, you know, should I go or should I stay now in terms of of selling or or making the plunge to buy? Um, In New South Wales, you can see more sort of strength, I think, in the there's more confidence in that market um so it'll be interesting to watch what happens in victoria in in parallel to what what happens on the health front so with um the new search kind of trends you've got obviously the you know our, our home office is kind of one keyword that people are looking at they're looking at more region areas but when they actually go to that and they get like say 100 um options in that area are you finding there's a massive discrepancy in the views per listings? As in people that are always really just wanting the absolute quality properties and the things that kind of are maybe main roads or compromised, the views per listing on those is dramatically down. So you're seeing this massive 
kind of flight to quality at all, or, or you're not, you haven't really seen that data? Um, I haven't seen that data, but I do know that renovated properties are always much more appealing and alluring to people. However, they're obviously priced a lot differently. So you sort of have that appeal of when a, re- when a property has been renovated, people think, great, the hard work's done for me. Um, yeah. And then there's a the next category down, which is sort of who are interested in completely unrenovated on that price point. And that's why I think it can be a bit tricky if you're in that no man's land of you know, renovated, but not that well, or, or a long time yeah, ago, yeah. because it's yeah. you're not getting the bargain of completely <laughs> unrenovated. A lot of work to do here. Renovators delight that headline that always seems to attract lots of people. Um, to having <laughs> a job completely done, and I think you know, I mean, you know, gosh, haven't we all been through enough this year without having to then renovate a property? Is how I kind of personally feel at the moment. Having said that, I'm about to do it, um, but I I do think for a lot of people at the moment, it, it is. A lot of the too hard baskets to do a lot of a, a lot of work on the property is it a bit in the too hard basket I suppose, um, but I I do think there's a premium properties that have been done they're ready to go move in straight away because some people haven't been that financially impacted by COVID and I, and do still have secure employment and those people are wanting to transact like the ACT market has just gone from strength to strength during COVID because you yeah. look at the sort of employment there it is so rock solid and secure yeah. <laughs> I mean I mean I would say touch wood for the Canberrans amongst us but but it is a very rock solid market and it, it hasn't even been dented by COVID. It is interesting, isn't it? Because I've got this sort of a bit of a theory that we've got the COVID impact on the market, you know, notwithstanding second wave or what might happen next. But Mm. there's the first bit, which was the knee jerk, freaking out, panic stations. Oh, my God, people stuck that, had, you know, had sold and, or sorry, had already purchased and then had their property on the market. And there's this sort of mad, nutty sort of behaviour, agents, you know, pressuring them to sell, telling them it's all going to fall off a cliff, all this sort of craziness. And then there's about six weeks later, it sort of settled down, partly maybe because we get to uh, have auctions and go to open houses again, but everyone sort of seemed to just go, you know what, I'm just going to get on with it. Yep. And yep. the same thing happened after the GFC, you know, in that sort of November, December, it was just ridiculous. People bailing, this is the end of the world. And then 2009 came back and and people went dusted themselves on and got back on with life. Um is that reflected in any way in terms of the data that you've got access to or what you No, it, it absolutely is, Veronica. And I think, you know, I think there was concern that, you know, we saw the RBA last week, you know, I would call, we'll call it a thought bubble, not what not what they were really going to pursue about. I think there's a thought vomit. I mean, I mean you know, there are some <laughs> things that should never be said really is all I'll uh, say on that note. That's knee-jerking. That was ridiculous. It was, but it really showed sort of a level um, that, someone in that team went to to think like that. Yeah. Um, I'm referring to them potentially pausing all, all property transactions. Uh, so I, I yeah. think um, there was concern about what will happen. And then I think as we became, and we're also watching, even in the US where things are so dire and detrimental to the markets there, properties still kept transacting you know so I think that the need for shelter is never going to be eradicated no matter what um, and that was why for us it was so much concern when they did look at sort of restricting auctions and there was a period over Easter where the Victorian government actually stopped even private inspections taking place which they then backflipped on because wow. yeah. you know it, it's just completely illogical and um, you know it's, it's an impossible idea that people don't need to be in a house and, and have the optionality to moving. There are many vulnerable people, if nothing else, that, that have to have access to that. So I, I think it, it it was alarming initially and then I completely agree that people sort of took a deep breath, had a cup of tea and thought, you know what, it is going to be okay. Let's go slowly and prudently. And I think there were some people who did have to sell that weekend when lockdowns came in and they did quickly pivot to online auctions um, and the market responded. Was it perfect? No, but people still managed to transact sales got done there were many properties which sold well over reserve for those sort of a-grade properties or or really Mm. well-priced properties did still sell really strongly Um, and what we are seeing it's the more c b-grade properties that have struggled to sell but they do eventually do eventually move i just think the way we transacted during covid was quite different than what we had done not having public auctions on the street um but some listings were selling in a couple of days. You know, some people quickly were like, let's go now. I don't want to wait. Go, go, go. And and the transaction was done. And arguably for those people, it's probably a lot less stressful than what it had been had they had a full campaign perhaps. You, you, the, the problem with that, though, is you just miss the transparency around having an auction, um, yes. <laughs> which, you know, I'm a believer in. Um, but, yeah, it's horses well, for courses. 
Yeah, and a lot of buyers fear auctions, but that is one of the huge benefits, that transparency. I have to say that, um, you know, agents sort of loved, you know, a lot of them, I think, loved the cover of COVID, you know, in terms mm. of how they their language around pricing, the language around negotiations, all that sort of thing was was rather interesting. And a lot of old tricks came out of the, out of the bags. And um, I thought, oh, I haven't heard those lines for a while. If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. What you say there about the A, A, A and B and C grade properties is exactly what, what we see and what we talk about a lot on this podcast. And this is, I, it's funny, Chris, you said something the other day and I thought this is a, it's a good description of really the, the difference of clearance rates. You know, what does a high clearance rate mean? We always say that high clearance rates say over 70% clearance rate says, well, that's a, it's a seller's market. Anything under 60% is a buyer's market and sort of 60 to 70 is sort of a balanced market, right? But the reality is that anything over 70% basically means that B and C grade properties are getting competition. And mm-hmm. it's basically FOMO. And anything under that is basically only the good stuff is selling at auction. And it's, it's a really great way to, to, to really define a market. You it, know? it is. And, and I think that during COVID, we, we did need to look less at clearance rates because there weren't as many auction, there weren't as many properties transactions and there weren't, there weren't as many auctions either. And I think you need to look at other metrics in the area. You need to really comb through listings, speak to, speak to agents and experts in those markets to understand what is happening and what is transacting. Um, I think, there was a period there, probably for about six weeks, for looking at the mm. clearance rate. It was, it was, it, I'm, I'm not saying it was reckless, but it was, it, it was little value when you weren't getting a proper snapshot of what the market was actually doing. Well, it was no value because the thing is that you had properties being with drawn mm-hmm. not because there was no interest you had properties being withdrawn because of covid because mm-hmm. of a health a health problem um and also because the the rules changed in terms of how they could actually take that property to market and so when you got that and when you got that causing withdrawals that's not your typical reason for um withdrawn property so of course when you get clearance rates in the 30 you know the 30 to, to 34 30 to 40 percent mm. brand it, it's not accurately reflecting the amount of buyers are out there for those properties. And it's very dangerous to read that snapshot of a clearance rate of 34% and think all that, mm. that, 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 that encapsulates everything that's happening because it's not the full picture of the market. Yeah, I had a client um, kind of say to us the other week is, you know, I was kind of arguing that buyers are kind of back and we could see that through search data, et cetera. He said, well, the clearance rates aren't really matching up. And, you know, I think that, you know, you're very, if you start focusing on one metric like that, you can very much kind of delay the market, you know, your decision, because if clearance rates do change, you kind of already kind of miss the boat, right? So, you know, clearance rates are one thing that I think people put way too much reliance on. And, um, you know, a lot of that comes to how you get your data, right? So I know that one of the things I love to do on a Saturday night around 6 to 6.30, sometimes a little bit kind of later, is look at all your auction results mm. on the domain um, app. How do you, as a business, get that data and make sure that it's consistent every week and you're actually getting the most results possible? So we we have a data team who collect those results from agents and we also contact agents for their results. That Saturday night rate, though, is the preliminary clearance rate. And then yeah. so during the week, that rate gets adjusted and then Thursday, the final rate is is the final number for that week. So it will yeah. it will fluctuate. Um, and I, that's why I think if you're a real sort of data nerd about stuff like that and you really do want to know a really accurate description, you do need to wait for the Thursday to look at all results when, when they have all, all those results have been entered into the system. True, but there's a relativity about it, isn't it? And so, I mean, for years, I'm stuck using the Saturday afternoon one because I've been using it for over 10 years. And the minute I change, you know, it's no longer relative to how I've been measuring in the past, you know. So you've got to make sure you stick to the same data set every mm. week yep. if you're using it as for a comparison um, sakes. 
Yeah. And, and there really can be no better dinner party conversation opener than did you see the clearance rate today? You know, I think I think on a Saturday <laughs> no. night I'm saying. So I completely understand what you're saying, but I just think that if you're really only looking at that metric and you need to do it with a bit of caution and wait for that final number. But I, I do love, as I said, it's my opening line on a, a 7 p.m. on a Saturday night. It's, it's, it's a good conversation opener. <laughs> it's funny. There was an article in the Herald in the Domain a few weeks back Um is, is it Tewa Ragazzi? Yes, the, yes, the yes, journalist. Yes, yes. and it was about Martin. a um a Stanmore, a property in Stanmore that had gone to auction, and you know, and and talking about others in the street that had sold pre pre COVID, um, you know, two hundred thousand more, and this passed in, et cetera, et cetera. And it was interesting because even then, I thought to myself, look, that was being offered for sale by an out of area agent. There's a variable. You know, mm-hmm. um, its location was a little bit closer to Parramatta Road than the others. That's a variable. Yeah. It's it's on a sloping block. That's a variable. There's all these variables that really, if you want to truly understand why one property might pass in versus uh, at a certain price, and even then it's a vendor's bid, it's, uh, I don't even know, I haven't checked what it's sold for. That's not even relative to what the others sold because they sold and this one hasn't sold yet. Mm. You know, and so there's all of that. I guess you guys have got to write stories and come out every week with a story but, and an angle, but but. For me, I just can't help myself but look at that and go, that's something else that needs to be looked at. Mm. In fact, I started re- writing a piece on response to it, but then I got stuck doing other things. And I well, you, sh- you should finish. <laughs> I'd love to read. You should finish it, Veronica. But I do think that's why I really encourage people. To, it's all You need to get out amongst it and be part yes. of the pack on, on a weekend or, or midweek yeah. whenever you want to do your inspections <clears throat> and speak to people, eavesdrop on conversations. I'm terrible at doing that with people at, at Open for Inspections because you <laughs> really get a sentiment of what people are saying and yeah. thinking about. Um, when, when they're walking through those properties and, and talking about the price and they're, and they're you know, kicking the tyres of metaphorically of, of the property and talking about the lack of the, the good orientation or, or, or the bad kitchen reno that's, mm. that the house has had or something. But you can see what's really um, seducing people into thinking that's an amazing property or not, but, but just by being out amongst it. It's so that's true. That's a really good um, article you use as a reference point for just our listeners to kind of dig a little bit deeper you know because i understand the premise of that article and i read it myself and i thought let me have a look at that property and i did the same thing as you veronica saw that it was backing onto Parramatta road and i thought well that's a property that you wouldn't compromise on for at the moment you just Hmm. unless you're really desperate and and buyers aren't desperate at the moment like they were just before COVID. so you know on the face of it it looks like yeah prices have fallen 200 grand but it, it, what it, what it kind of shows is that people aren't desperate because they're not willing to buy something that's backing onto kind of Parramatta road yeah yeah um, and i think that's the danger when we read articles is we go oh that must be true because there's a reference point it all makes sense but until you kind of dig a bit deeper then you can kind of figure out actually maybe it does make sense you know I find I like overhearing what people say at open houses too because obviously if I'm particularly interested in a property I like to know that you know I can see the negatives but I like to make sure that other buyers are seeing those negatives and I'm continuing to to read it right but there's also a lot of talk I hear a lot of people at open houses you know really badgering the agents and and you know I think to myself you can you can talk to the cows come home. You can tell them that the market's falling. You can tell them you wouldn't pay you know four hundred thousand less than they are, than they're quoting, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But you're not going to buy a property if that is the way you're going about it. And it's just it's interesting that there is a sort of a segment of of buyers out there at the moment that are they're, they're sort of bullies. They feel like well, I think they're the bears, and they they're all convinced that they're right. They're convinced that everything's falling. They won't actually buy anything anyway because they think it's going to fall further. And in the meantime, property still transacts, property still ticks over, prices aren't falling off a cliff in these areas. Um, and and, and in- for some people, are missing those dream properties that yes, that, that, because I suppose is it ego that's getting in their way or is yeah. it arrogance? I don't know, but that's why that's why. I think your motivation for buying a property has to be, you have to really hold that sort of close to your heart and think, am I going to let those other factors get in the way of this? And I mean, only only the prospective buyer can answer that question. But I, I yeah, I know what you're saying, Veronica. And I think um, a lot of those people, you know, I think it's also very useful to lean on an agent. And I think by hitting them up <coughs> like that and pushing them into a corner, you're not really doing yourself <laughs> any favours. Um is my personal belief. Well, they sell it to spite you. Well, that's what I mean. Like, and at the end of the day, you, you haven't got you haven't got the property. So, yes. <laughs> yeah, those property bears that you do see around, um, they very quickly become property bulls when they buy a property. Um, and so, 
you know, one of our behavioral biases, we value things, you know, when we're trying to buy something, we think the car's worth $9,000, but as soon as we own the car, we think it's worth $11,000, right? So, um, and we overvalue things that we own. So it's funny, those people I always laugh at because, you know, they, they change their tune very fast as soon as they own something because now they're invested and now they're, um, and the, the whole mindset completely shifts. Mm. Mm. That's if they manage to get something. I mean, it's funny. I was, um, you know, I hear people walking around. My, uh, you know, that said, there are times when agents do accidentally overquote property. You know, they don't want to overquote it. Let's face it; they they want to get it just right so they can they can generate that uh, level of uh, interest. But um, but sometimes they do accidentally overquote it. They get a bit bit uh, gung-ho or a bit excited about it and it doesn't quite hit the mark of buyers. Well, and you can and you can see the challenge when the house next door might have sort of sold mm. for a very strong place because it became an emotional auction. You know, yes. you had an auction mm. where there was so much heat and demand for it and people did go crazy and nuts. Yeah. And, and you can see the difficulty of them when the house next door sells, which is similar enough, and that doesn't happen. You can, you can see the conundrum of, of what it is for that agent when pricing a yeah. property. That's why yeah. I just you have to just pour over data and data and data and put into a spreadsheet or work with someone to help you understand pricing a property um, and also what you're willing to pay for it. That's the ultimate question here. Absolutely. In point, fact, I just, I'll just i chuck a little plug in there only because I've got a, a little mini course on Home Buyer Academy. So it's homebuyeracademy.com.au forward slash free course if any, anyone is interested because I've actually put together a little mini course to teach you how to do that and there's a spreadsheet in there and it's such good advice because you've got to track property. You've got to inspect them yourself. Go to the auctions. See which ones are competitive and which ones aren't competitive because then you'll start to get the difference. You'll get to see why people fight for that and they didn't fight for that. Um, and that is really, I mean, and you might then think, okay, if you want a bargain, you go for something nobody else is fighting for, but then you have to think down the track when you go to sell it, can you fix it and make it like those other ones? Mm. Or is there nothing you can do about it? Because then that's going to be a noose around your own neck or an anchor. Yeah. It won't do as well as a really, you know, a real cracker property that gets all those people fighting over right now. And I think on that spreadsheet, like like you should enter in the, the what, what you should enter in the the price guide of what the agent is quoting, and then what it actually yes. sells for, or or maybe <laughs> what it gets passed in for, and then even what it does eventually sell for when the title gets released to the public. You know, I think it's it's really worthwhile looking at that to understand what it is making those prices that go well over reserve. What, what happened? What was that magic factor that that that, that property may have had? And so back to livability, because this is a thing that you can't pick up in a livability um, survey about a suburb, can you? This is actually about the individual property within that suburb. Mm-hmm. And do you guys have anything, uh, have you pulled out anything about that, you know, those individual characteristics of a property that actually make it overperform? Look, I, I think a lot of it's about sort of also the proportion of the property to the land it's on. And mm. I think in certain areas like, you know, Lavender Bay or something in Sydney, for example, is, is a tiny little suburb along with Milsons Point and that. And they've got, some, I mean, like, sorry, there are some beautiful big estates on there, but on the whole, they are quite small properties. So I think you have to sort of think about um, the land ratio to the house size or it couldn't be an apartment, couldn't it? So I think that's definitely part of it. Um, and that's why I think it's interesting in Victoria and we saw areas like Footscray come into it which aren't aren't renowned for having big gardens or very big houses even, but that still managed to come as part of that, offering livable accommodation at the same time. Well, it comes back to that trade-off that you mentioned earlier, which is space versus location. You know, you're willing to give up a big garden in order to be closer in. I mean, Footscray is still an inner west suburb, right? Sort of outer inner west? No, it's the inner west of Melbourne. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's a great suburb because it's the location's amazing, um, access to cafes, you know, commute, the things that were holding it back in terms of, you know, white jumped up livability was obviously the crime and mm. um, the gentrification. And I think those are the amazing suburbs to look for because if you those things do change, then the suburb dramatically shifts in terms of its desirability and that's where you get the biggest kind of uplift. Oh, well, sorry, I think Hills in, sorry, 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 but say Surrey Hills in Sydney um, about 20 years ago when I first started I in dead. real estate, that had a shock. It had, I think it was the highest crime rate in mm. Sydney. Mm-hmm. And yet, and now, you know, try and buy an apartment there. Um, yep. 
Well, yeah, and yeah, Surrey Hills, Redfern in Sydney as well. We've seen the same yeah, things exactly. happen. Mm. And we've seen the same things, you know, I mean, even in Victoria, in, in Melbourne, in, in Port Melbourne, it was used to be a very working class suburb. And mm. now it's much le- a hugely desirable suburb in Melbourne. So I do think you kind of want to get to those areas before that, <laughs> before yeah. they become really livable and you're actually priced out of them. We saw that we've seen that in obviously Northcote in Melbourne, sort of the home of Brunswick, uh, Brunswick Northcote, Thornbury. You know, yeah. people now think, oh, I'd, you know, I'm willing to move to Thornbury. And now that, that idea is just over because it's like, I can't <laughs> afford that. I've got to go to the next place. So I love, I love, yeah, completely. <laughs> but I love that idea of those sort of bridesmaid suburbs, that the ones that surround the big, the big blue chip areas, or, you know, in terms of price, those areas to, to, to make people to go out to the next suburb along. And maybe that will be the, the next hot spot. If you're willing to go one more train station along the line or something, it could be a good place to live if, if affordability is such a big factor for, for, for you, which it is for many buyers. Even somewhere like Frankston in Melbourne, right? So crime, very high, um, but livability, okay, so you've got a train straight to the city, you're on the coast, got access to the Morning, Mornington Peninsula, mm-hmm. um, et cetera. And so it's, it's really a suburb that potentially should, you know, be a nice place to live, but crime and, you know, hist- history is kind of, made people not want to live there but mm. you know things like that have, have shifted right like frankston's getting a lot of investment that's got a bit of community etc so i think when you're looking at investing i think livability is such a good basis to kind of overlay on a suburb and go well can these things change well and Chris, you, perhaps a to... better example of that might actually end up being geelong which is like the cousin yeah. of sort of frankston because it ha- because it's got the, it's got a huge hospital there a huge health infrastructure there and employment's much stronger in geelong than it is in frankston so yeah. i think when you when you add the layer of employment into it that's a lot mm. more attractive isn't it than the frankston which doesn't have as much infrastructure um and resourcing available for jobs because obviously jobs is a huge part of it if you do live a little bit a bit further out. It's, that's really important, but it's also important to think how long these gentrification uh, processes take. Mm. Um, yeah, uh, you know, Geelong, when did the Ford factory close? Um, oh, um, what are we? You know, and? yeah, probably, I think probably yeah. about that, maybe even, maybe even more. Yeah. But, it's a long, t- it's a long time coming. But I think you know the, the infrastructure to get down to Geelong now is so different than what it was, you know, ten or fifteen years ago, um, mm. and and the trains that are that are coming that way as well. But I, I think a lot of it is also the expansion of towns around it, like Torquay, the Surf Coast town, has really expanded and become a greater suburb now. Um, so it's changing the way people live down there and making it a lot more accessible to more people. Yeah, Geelong's an amazing place to invest. I think. Um... You know, you've got a lot of the houses, very similar style to the inner ring of Melbourne, mm-hmm. you know, in places like Newtown, Geelong West, Ripley, et cetera, where people who are wanting to live in that beautiful frontage, that beautiful terrace, um, can actually replicate that property in Geelong for, you know, substantially less and then have access to all the Mornington, uh, the kind of gradation road, et cetera. Um, and the next thing that could potentially lift that area is, is a fast fast rail yep. which and, uh, the government are committed to I guess yeah and I think it's a bit like Orange in New South Wales I think of in a similar way that um, houses, yeah. there's a lot of desirability out there and, and you can you can really see why it's a beautiful town it's a beautiful place to place to live I think that interesting that you've got character buildings as well I think that's got something to do with it don't you think yeah, you know, yeah. I know that what's the main drag of Geelong this you know it does have that, that lovely his, historic sort of feel to it Orange obviously is classic for that. Um, I think Ballarat. Ballarat another one of those. Yeah, like yeah. In Ballarat, um, you you get a beautiful, amazing around the train station houses and you know streets and streets and streets of them. But you know where you don't want to buy in Ballarat is all the house and land packages that are you know can go on for farms and farms yeah. and farms on the fringes. And it's a kind of a two tier market there. You know the beautiful homes. Yep, buy those, but. The, the house and land and the fringes kind of avoid. We were talking about this on the block the other day, the desirability of people for for period homes or homes with character. Um, it, it can never be underestimated, can it? I think people love that idea of having a sort of a piece of history. Um, people obviously want their homes to function, but I think people really love a unique um, a unique style of property uh, and with a, with a nod to our beautiful, you know, the heritage of the city that we live in. And I think, you know, 
Victoria has lots of um, Edwardian Victorian Federation homes, as does obviously yeah. Sydney, you know, and, and, and Queensland has got those gorgeous old Queenslander properties. And I think it's a mm. lovely part of Australia that we see so many different sort of um, elements of architecture over the years. And, and people do amazingly and inventive things when, when they restore these properties. And it's all about scarcity. I mean, the simple fact is that if you build something that looks like a Queenslander, it's not a Queenslander. It's mm-hmm. something that looks like a Queenslander. If you build something that looks like an old Federation home, it's it's not. I mean, a lot of project homes, for instance, have had these nods to these sort of some of the architectural elements of Federation homes, yeah. and they just look awful. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so you can't replicate it. So therefore, that is something. And also, there's still there's still these sort of properties being demolished in, in suburbs where they don't have development control plans to stop that. So these are diminishing resources and, yeah. um, you know, and so that scarcity does add to the uh, the the cost of them or the price mm. of them or sustainable price of those sorts oh, of properties. Oh, that's but, count, right? Absolutely, so like absolutely. You rock up. Yeah. And one thing I love is um, it happened on the block a couple of years ago and again this year where they've cut up these old houses from, you know, old towns or older parts of Melbourne and then relocated them onto land in a different suburb. And I think <laughs> that's a great idea for folks, first home buyers to look at, you know, like a house that would literally be torn down and if it was in, I don't know, the outskirts of Ballarat, finding a block of land and moving it. And to watch this is just the most, it's like watching bypass surgery. They, they cut up the house in perfect sort of quarters put it on a truck and then relocate it and then sew it back together again and it's just amazing and it's a very affordable way of um, having heritage or having a house with character in the in the location that you like we uh, got to be we, uh, wooden houses they've got to be like queensland they've got to be weatherboard yeah, they've got to be, be weatherboard, weatherboard. <laughs> and when you drive south from the south, the sunshine coast to brisbane up high on the ridge yeah. on the on the right there's actually like a an old weatherboard house shop up there there's yeah. wow. this place where they they put there for storage until somebody buys them um wow what, that must up. be an incredible site to it's look quite at. bizarre you look up and there's all these sort of empty you know windowless houses <laughs> waiting for yeah. someone to buy them and relocate them but i think from like I, I like the idea of recycling properties rather than tearing them down do you know what i mean i think um as long as they're going to the right spot um it's a lovely i'd prefer to see that than have all these houses demolished in in beautiful areas and it's a classic because a weatherboard home actually was a, a very affordable way of building homes back mm-hmm. in the day and so it is sort of rather interesting um, that that is a good reuse and it does bring that character and I wonder I do wonder whether project homes of today will be picked up carved up put on a truck and taken to different locations in the future I somehow <laughs> think not no comment Veronica on that now Alice have you brought along a property dumbo for us a, a mistake that we can learn from I have, and I'm. I'll full disclosure. It's actually my own mistake. I'm really going to Excellent. go. Excellent. I'm going to be really honest about this one here. Um, it was when it was a few years ago. Um, my husband and I were in the midst of trying to buy a property, and we found this house that we loved, and the auction was, you know, a week and a half away. And um, we were like, yeah, "That's it. We've done all our due diligence. I was not making any rookie mistakes about not doing. I did. Ha- we did pest inspections. Yeah. The whole shebang." And um, okay. and then we ended up getting a call, and the and I disclosed to the agent we were interested. We would have been tagged as a strong strong buyer, and then oh. the agent called us that week prior and said someone's put an offer in. They're going to go to auction. We're going to sell before auction. And I was unfortunately I live in Melbourne. I was in Sydney for work that week, and um, my my husband and I were like, okay, quick, let's get our act together. We put a bid back, and then it went back and forth, and then. I had to hop on a plane to fly back to Melbourne. And during that flight, the final flurry of bids took place. And my husband and I had not settled on our final number, which is obviously crucial. So this whole flight, I just thought, do we have this house or not? And landed, turned my phone on as soon as I could, and we'd missed out by (sighs) $10,000. And I suppose the the importance to me is I just can't believe that we'd done all this. We had an architect in, and as I said, done every other, dotted every on every T, but hadn't really had the conversation about just how yeah. far we would actually push it to the edge to get our dream property. And for me, it is the one that got away. You know, that property, it was mm. in the right school zone for us and the right train station. And I mean, it's, you know, and, and maybe it would have gone up again. It would have, we would have got priced out. But I just always think 
we were so naive not to have really pressure tested our final price and had agreed on that right from the start. We, we had a ballpark price, we had our financing from the bank, but we, we really should have gone down to that absolute granular detail of having that price locked in of what we were prepared to stretch to um, before and, and just and just and not to be in the same room at the same time was just all the more stressful and it was completely yeah. our own fault. You're probably expecting to have that conversation on Thursday or Friday or even Saturday morning. Oh, well, Chris, right? we had like, and we kept saying on Thursday yeah. night we'll have the conversation. We'll really <laughs> we'll work out how much do we really want yeah. to stretch for it. And I think yeah. it's, and you can see people at auctions. I see this often in the street, and oh, and the wife's yes. elbowing the husband of, come on, like it's a little bit more, go go go. And and someone's like, no. And I think you just have to be so aligned as to what your what your absolute cap is. And if you've got someone buying for you, that's a that's a very good way of doing that because they yeah. will literally you know, put you in a headlock gently and say, is this your max? You know, let's not go over that. Or, you know, do you want me to push and pull you on that one? Um, But for us, just to not have that alignment, I just think we were such Muppets. And, um, yeah, we didn't make the same mistake. We got got another house eventually. But I do, you know, I do think that was the one that got away. Oh, that's Mm -hmm. such a good Dumbo and so hard. That's actually one of the reasons I wrote the book, Auction Ready, because I do go and see people at auction, exactly what you're talking about there, Alice, where, you know, it's at the point of the auction when the emotion is at its absolute height that they suddenly realise they haven't actually had that conversation as under pressure, how far will we go? Mm. And that's exactly what you say you got caught out by, not actually having that figure in your head that so you woke up the next or you got off the plane with regrets. Um, And it sounds unbelievable. As I say it out loud, it's like, what were you thinking, Alex? Why didn't you have that? That was the one thing you had to have before anything, really. But I it's suppose, really common. Yeah, really and, common. and we just kept thinking, oh, maybe we'll work out we really do want it and then we'll we'll work out something more creative in, in our final price or something, you know. But we just, <laughs> I, I just, I, I can't believe I was so naive, I suppose. But, um, yeah, it was a lesson learned and um, did not make that mistake again. I've got a theory that one of the reasons that that is why people don't have don't really really pressure test like you say their limit is because they're really still thinking about what do you think we might be able to get it for Mm, so they're thinking what can we you know they're thinking bargain as opposed to where will I go if I have to at what point will I uh am I prepared to let it go you know where will I not want to miss out on it you know at what point will I do I not want to miss out on it for yeah it's Um, almost like they're being a perennial optimist and thinking the best case not the worst case whereas you're covered if you think worst case and I think it's the same for for vendors in the end the house we we bought in the end and I'm I'm not I'm not plugging vendor advocates here but I I think the house that we bought was a couple they were divorcing and they tried to sell in the November that year it got passed in an auction you know they were about I I think they were, they, were, they were about 50k under their reserve and it got passed in but they were divorcing so three months later they relisted after Christmas they still hadn't sold and apparently their relationship was getting worse and worse they changed agents you know you can see what's where this mm, is going yep. yeah, and then yep. we, came, we got to a new agent who contacted us about it and we came in and they said you can offer well under what they're asking because they now have to sell they're literally about oh. to, to throttle each other and then so we got it for even less than it passed in for at auction yeah. in november and the market had also changed so i mean mm-hmm. it, it worked in our favor but i just thought had those poor people had a vendor advocate or someone to help them you know, mm. to take the, bur- the you know, burn the hands worth more yeah. than two in the bush on the day, they would have been financially a lot, hundreds of thousands better off than what, what yeah. they ended up having to sell for. It's so emotional and, and you know, you're absolutely right, but you just gave us two Dumbos, so that's fabulous. <laughs> two Dumbos for the price of one. There you go. <laughs> well, the second one, I guess, was potentially just being ready to negotiate or having someone because, I mean, you jumped on the plane. I mean, you probably, if that was kicking off, prior to the flight it would have been tempting just to miss the flight oh chris i Um, shouldn't have got on the plane like again what was i thinking like i don't know why i didn't just think get the next flight alice it's nothing you know in the scheme high pressure high pressure situations we never think clearly it's only afterwards we think oh hindsight so clear completely (laughs) completely Thank you so much, Alice. Has been a really great chat. We've enjoyed uh, those insights into what's happening. In, you know, let's go back to where we started this around the tree and sea changes and and a, and a shift and a la- uh, I guess a, a, an awareness that lifestyle and potentially that means outside of our cities is something that's very high on the list of uh, a lot of Australians at the moment. So thank you so much for coming along. It was a pleasure to chat with you both. Thank you. Thank you, Alice. Cheers. 
We want to make you a better elephant rider. And this week's elephant rider training is... We talked a bit there with Alice around, you know, looking at unrenovated properties versus renovated properties. There's a gap between unrenovated and renovated, and that is renovated but dated. So if a property's been renovated in the 80s or the 90s, it's probably very unpopular. You know, you've got renovators who go for things that are in original condition and pretty shabby condition. You've got people that are not renovators who want to go for something that's been recently done. But in the middle, often you've got properties that don't actually require anywhere near the same amount of renovating as an unrenovated property. And yet they they tend to be, they fit in a no man's land with buyers. You know, the renovators don't like it and the, and the people who don't want to do work don't like it. But there's some great opportunities in there if the property has good bones and particularly if it's in a good location. So I would say look for a bit of, you know, salmon pink walls and grey carpet that's really 1980s or in the 90s lots of glass bricks and green granite bench tops and so there's really particular uh, design features I guess of those times that really date a property you could actually potentially pick up a real opportunity that requires renovation sure but nowhere near the same amount of structural renovation uh, that something that is completely unrenovated needs and potentially at a discount sometimes those properties sell for less than the unrenovated version and yet they need less money spent on them i guess it's also just being careful you don't buy the renovated one it's just a cheap renovated job Mm. thinking it's fully renovated but you know you haven't really realized that it's maybe not the best quality, maybe it's going to date really fast, et cetera. So, um, yeah, not all renovations are, are equal as well. It's very true. Lipstick on a pig uh, and and particularly with fashion, you know, and obviously usually those yeah. sorts of properties are dressed within an inch of their lives and yeah. when you go and do your pre-settlement inspection, you suddenly realise, oh, God, this isn't really yeah. as good as I thought it was. Yeah, Hampton style is generally the furniture and white walls. So it's, <laughs> take the furniture away, you've just got white walls. <laughs> Please join us for our next episode when we're interviewing property manager Lisa Inge and we're finding out how hard coronavirus really has hit property investors, who's been hit hardest, what rental falls are really being experienced. We're going to understand what type of investment properties been most vulnerable to the pandemic and what's been the most resilient. Plus, great insights into the actual amount of tenants that are asking for rental relief. It's not as high as we may be led to believe. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. If you're a first home buyer and you don't want to miss a step with this most important purchase, join me on Wednesday nights at 7.30pm Sydney time on the Home Buyer Academy Facebook page for live Q&A. Check out the website, homebuyeracademy.com.au. Every month, my team hosts a webinar on what we are seeing in the banks, the best rates, changing policy and their service. We also share the latest insights we hear and read that are impacting the property market direction. Check out wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.